I'd love to hear um, who you are uh, and, and really what you hope to gain out of this morning's conversation so that we can maximize our limited time together. Because it sounds like there are different levels of understanding or engagement with the low. So I'll give you the, 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 the whistle-stop history, the potted history, as quickly as I can. Because the low is actually a very special place. And I'm not just saying that because it's my job to run it, but because I truly profoundly believe it. It's the reason I left um, Connecticut to come down to Miami with, with my family to assume the director's position four years ago. The Low was founded in 1950, which makes us the oldest art museum in Miami. And for a good 25 years, we were the only art museum in, in our region. And because of that very prosaic fact, we actually have um, a very remarkable collection. We were the only institution where if you were a collector and you wanted to give your work to a, a museum, we were the only option in this part of the world. So as of today, we have 19,026 objects which span um, five millennia of human creativity and represent every inhabited continent. And I would invite you, if you have time after this conversation this morning, to visit the, the galleries as my guest. It's much bigger than it looks, and it, it, it unfolds in this most magical way. You will discover not only the modern and contemporary galleries where we had refreshments this morning, but do not misplease the Pali Pavilion for contemporary glass and ceramics which you enter from the side there. And then you can continue your circuit around to see our temporary exhibitions, including Antillian Visions, 500 Years of Mapping the Caribbean. Also, a wonderful photography De show devoted to documenting indigenous peoples from around the world and is actually closing very soon, so I encourage you to see that. But you will also see along the way works from Africa, from Asia. We have a stunning collection of works from Native America. We have European Renaissance and Baroque paintings, which you can't see anywhere else in Miami. Um, and we have antiquities as well. So we are the mini Met in Miami. As a matter of fact, we have nine works on loan from the Met, which we're very proud of and happy to be partnering with them and with a number of other organizations. We have a very robust exhibition program. We mount between 12 and 15 exhibitions each year. Some are very small and focused, like this Del Geist exhibition. Um, that you see, some of you can see, some of you can't because it's behind you, but there, there's a, a wonderful little exhibition devoted to a New York sculptor, Del Geist again is his name, and then we have larger exhibitions. This is our year of glass uh, in no small measure because we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Pali Pavilion that I mentioned earlier. Um, so it has been fully reinstalled and refreshed and it looks really quite beautiful. And we also just installed last week the wonderful Chihuly sculpture, which I hope you noticed on your way in. We're very excited about that because it's really transformed our exhibition, our, sorry, our lobby space. In honor of the Year of Glass, we also have two glass exhibitions opening in the fall. One is highlights from a private collection in Aventura, Bob and Florence Warner, if you happen to know them. And another uh, smaller show devoted to the work of a maestro based in Murano. His name is Gianpaolo Seguzzo. And he and his family have been blowing glass since 1309. So we feel like he's you know, just hitting his stride now in terms of the, the lineage. 
Um, so lots to see and lots to do because all of these exhibitions are always accompanied by programs, whether it's a lecture or a docent tour, we have community days or family days. Uh, so if you're not on our website, sorry, our, on our mailing list, I encourage you to sign up and the folks at the reception desk can help you with that. In terms of me, uh, yes, again, I trained as a lawyer. It did not work out well for me. It was not making me very happy professionally, so I went back to school for a long time and pursued my passion, which, which is art history. My PhD is in 18th century Neapolitan painting, in particular looking at cultural politics between Naples and Rome um, and the, the Bourbon Kings and the Papacy. Um, we have one 18th century Neapolitan painting on view in our Crest Galleries, if you're interested in that particular genre. But I've now left that very far behind in terms of my, my scholarship because I'm responsible for 5,000 years and running a museum. I think that, uh, bearing in mind the original premise of this conversation, I'll just throw some things out at you and then you can give me your feedback but also ask me questions that I'm not hitting upon. And originally I was asked to really talk about how artists can engage with the low uh, in particular, but also I think museums in general. Uh, and I will share with you, this probably will not come as a surprise, but almost every day in the mail I get a lovingly prepared packet put together by an artist um, wanting me to make sure, wanting to make sure that I'm aware of his or her work. Uh, that is wonderful, but is really not the most effective way to reach out to a museum, in no small measure because I'm, I'm and when I say I, I'm really talking about, I'm sure, most museum directors across the country, um, uh, if not further afield. We're bombarded by these packages, and it's not that we don't care. Um, I always take the time to look, and I try very hard to always answer, but because of the sheer volume, and because of our limitations in terms of space and uh, time and resources, we really, it's very, very uncommon for us to um, accept a, 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 an exhibition or a work that comes to us that way. So how do you rise to the top? Well, a couple of things. One, if you want to pursue that line of reaching out directly, try to establish a connection. See who's in your network that might know the director or the curator to whom you're reaching out so that you're not just anonymous, that you're not cold calling. There is someone who has said on your behalf, hey, you should really give this person the time and attention. Um, and it really is much more effective that way. Also, I'm sure I don't need to say this to, to those of you who are in this room, but be very thoughtful about what you send. Um, it's, it's wonderful when I get a CD-ROM full of people's work. I don't have a CD drive on my computer, however, and that's very frustrating for me because I want to take the time to look at what this person has taken the time to send me, but um, make it easy and to the point. Don't send me a pile like this. Send something that's very, very targeted, very specific, and shows that you know what the low, again, I'm being very specific, but you can extrapolate out what we're all about uh, and, and where you see a real opening. Because otherwise, frankly, um, I think you're wasting your time and precious resources. So be very strategic, do your planning in advance, and um, be quite surgical in your precision in terms of who you are reaching out to and, and why. Even better is having someone reach out on your behalf. So I've already said, try to establish that context so there's a personal connection. It is even more effective if you can have someone who is a, a, um, a gallerist, 
a fellow museum director, um, even a, a donor who's involved with the museum and, and already has credibility, as it were, to say, hey, this is, this is an artist that I think is really worth your time and attention. The third thing I would say is, um, and this is easy for me to say, I know, um, but don't take the rejections personally. Again, it's just this tremendous volume um, that we're receiving, not just from artists, but also from other institutions around the world who want us to show their exhibitions that they've put together. Because as I'm sure you're aware, many exhibitions do travel. They don't just stay at their organizing venue. And um, museums are also uh, pushing constantly to find second, third, fourth, seventh venues for their exhibitions. So we, um, we have a, an abundance of choices. And again, uh, I think that I and most of my colleagues that I know in the field try to be very thoughtful um, and, and respectful of the time and attention that the artists have put in. Um, because I certainly recognize that what you're doing is, is really expressing your soul, right? It's your animus that you're, that you're um, giving material form when you are creating your art. So I, I take no's very seriously, um, but unfortunately for me at least, it's perhaps my least, the least favorite part of my job. I find myself having to say no very often. So maybe these things are very evident to you and you were aware already, but these were the things that really came um, top of mind to me thinking about what I would share with you. I would also say that um, you should keep in mind that most museums, at least at this scale and larger, have their exhibition calendars set three to five years out. Our exhibition calendar is already scheduled through 2021 um, because the shows are so complicated and frankly so expensive, so I have to plan very carefully in terms of the fundraising piece of it. It also becomes complicated when, uh, when you want to um, or you're, you're proposing an exhibition or a show and there are some high production costs involved so your work may not be printed if you're a photographer or working in the digital realm or it may not be matted and framed those sorts of things um, are very serious considerations that you should have kind of puzzled through in your own mind before you're approaching an institution uh, recognizing that they're there having an estimate of what needs to be done and affiliated cost and I think in many cases also uh, expressing a clear willingness to partner with the museum uh, because fundraising is, is a huge part of my job it's also very difficult so uh, if an artist or a partner steps forward to say I realize it's going to cost $50,000 to print this work I think together we can write grants um, I have resources I have contacts let's let's leverage um, our, our assets that's also hugely helpful what about questions in terms of engaging generally? Uh, what would you like to know about the low and how we operate? We have a very active docent corps, volunteers. We have almost, um, I think it's about 70 uh, volunteers who work with us on a regular basis, uh, which is a big number. It's, it's um, a lot of work for our, our educators to make sure that the docents are getting the training and the support that they need. And I think the most exciting thing that is happening in our education um, division here, because we don't, we are an academic art museum, which means we are part of a university. But we, as I'm sure you know, if you live in Miami, do not just serve the University of Miami. In fact, about 65 to 75% of our uh, visitation comes from uh, off campus, which is a real 
we're a community a asset and a community resource. And um, wanting to be very mindful of serving both the campus and the community, we, we have done two things uh, in the past couple of months. One is that thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, we hired a um, fellow for campus engagement. So this is a four-year position, someone whose sole job is to work with our faculty and students to make sure they're aware of the assets we have both at the museum as well as the library and to incorporate those objects into their teaching and learning and to reach the wider world. We are also in the process, thanks to the Knight Foundation, of hiring a director of digital engagement strategies. So it's really taking the museum beyond the walls in terms of our web presence and, and anything we might do in the digital space, but it is also bringing technology into the galleries, which is something that's new for us. We have a Sebastian Spring exhibition that opens on May 17th. And again, thanks to the generosity of Knight, we, um, for those of you who don't know Sebastian, he was a painter. He has, um, he has a debilitating disease, uh, which now has left him unable to, to paint, to hold the brush the way he used to. So he has moved over to the digital realm. He creates his work uh, on an iPad, which is then printed uh, at varying scales. Um, but this seemed like such a perfect opportunity to embrace digital that we partnered with the Knight. And for his show, we will have um, large format iPads, they look like iPads, they're not, that on which people will be able to create their own work in the manner of, of Sebastian's paintings. Um, we also have augmented reality apps that are being developed. His show is called Dresden. It's focused on the decimation of Dresden during World War II in February 1945. And these augmented reality um, applications will allow you to, using his work as a trigger, to see Dresden um, before the bombings and then the resulting um, imagery that, that Sebastian has created. So we, we try to do a blend of analog and now digital, wanting to keep pace with our audience expectations. And again, we serve, we serve a very broad spectrum across the community and across the campus. The low is very, very stringent in terms of what it accepts um, because one needs to be mindful of the fact that what we're accepting, in theory at least, we're accepting forever and in perpetuity is a very long time. And if you're a collector or even if you're an artist with a, with a, a significant mass of your own work, you know that it's, it's not easy or inexpensive to take care of it properly. In fact, we spend um, over $100,000 a year just on off-site storage because we have so much art. So uh, under my tenure in particular, we've become much more stringent about what we accept, wanting to honor our mission and making sure that those things that we take, we can take care of forever, uh, but also that they really do further our mission. And our mission, by the way, we revised this after um, 18 months of very, very careful thinking with a number of constituents on campus, off campus. I created a new committee, an advisory committee specifically for this purpose. And as silly as it sounds, uh, because it's so obvious, our new mission is exploring contemporary culture through 5,000 years of human creativity. Um, why? Well. 
what sets us apart is our collection. We are the only encyclopedic museum um, with this global collection in our region. But we also have to be mindful of where we are. We're in Miami, and Miami is extremely interested in contemporary art and culture. So we are trying really to, to not lose sight of who we are while serving our audience's needs and interests. But in terms of how we decide, there are a couple of, of layers. Um, there, are, there are triggers that are um, um, catalyzed by value. So for things that are low value, relatively speaking, I as director and chief curator can decide on my own. I never do that. It doesn't make me comfortable. I do always refer to my collections team and obviously we do the research in terms of the artist. We look at our own collection to see where this work fits in. Is it filling a gap? Is it duplicate? Those sorts of things. We do look at value just so we have a rough index or a sense of, of the value of the work mostly for insurance purposes rather than for helping us decide whether or not it's worth um, uh, something we want to add to the collection. Once you begin to um, climb up the scale, I have a collections committee that I established and we meet on a quarterly basis or as needed. And we have, uh, we have them look at the works that are under consideration and um, they don't vote, but they do give me advice, which we listen to very, very carefully. So we have um, a couple of different mechanisms. And then I should say at the very top end for things that are extremely um, high value and or um, significant to us, for example, the Chuhuli that was gifted to us last year, not only is it high value, but it was extraordinarily expensive for the low to accept that gift because we had to not only remove it from the donor's house, um, his duplex stair hall in Palm Beach for which it was custom made by Chihuly 20 years ago, but we then had to spend a great deal of time and frankly money working with Dale Chihuly and his team to reconfigure um, the, the, the design and then have the armature constructed. We had a team from Seattle, we had a curator from Michigan, so on and so forth. So it's all very complicated, um, but there, there are, there are strategies and also protocols in place to make sure that we are to the best of our ability doing our research before we accept anything and making sure it really is in alignment with our mission and also I should say we have a collections management policy as do all museums that are accredited or we don't buy a lot of art um, oftentimes again artists with all the right intentions and all the goodwill in the world will reach out to me wanting to um, wanting to gauge my interest in terms of purchases and to be frank, we have so many more pressing needs uh, in terms of our edu educational mission that I have made the very conscious decision to divert the vast majority of our funds to um, exhibitions, which are the drivers for all of our educational programming and more importantly to the programming itself so that we're serving the community. Um, so we, we find ourselves, again, having to say no quite a bit. Um, I think that it's part of a very, of, of maintaining a healthy collection and resource alignment uh, I will tell you, not even off the record, because it's, I, I have, it's, it's the truth. I feel that the museum outgrew itself in terms of its collection. 19,026 objects is a lot for a museum with a staff of just under 20 people and an operating budget of um, $3.5 million. Um, if we needed all of 19,026, it would be felt very strongly that they were all serving our mission. Great, we're lucky but I know that not to be true, and I know that not to be true in probably 99.99% .99 of all museums. Um, so we are actually working with Christie's Auction House through their Museum Services Division, and again, this is not a secret, it's not something I'm ashamed of or trying to hide. 
because we're being extremely methodical. And we are going through the collection. This will take a decade, by the way. So this is part of the reason why we're being so careful about what we say yes to. Um, it's very easy to say yes. It's incredibly hard to, um, to then, yes, go back and deaccession the work if you do it properly. So we're going through our collection area by area. Christie's will send a team of specialists, which is one of the reasons why we're working with a big auction house. They have, they have experts and specialists that, that I just don't have access to, uh, certainly not on my staff, but also for budgetary reasons, um, not out in the wider world. So they come, they do a survey, they make re uh, reports and recommendations, and then I will hire one, sometimes two consultants to come in independent to give me a second opinion. And then I will look at where those reports cross and I will then do some further research on my own, looking at our own files to see in particular who donated the work, what were the terms of the gifts, how does this fit into our collection, uh, those sorts of things. And only at that point when I have my recommendation on behalf of the low, do I go to the dean, the provost, the president, the board of trustees to say, yeah, for them to say yes, you may proceed to auction. So we do it deaccession, um, uh, but we do it very, very carefully. And um, I don't know, probably the artists have read and then the art news uh, magazines and, and online sources, some of the kerfuffles over deaccessioning the Berkshire's, Berkshire Museum was, is, is an ongoing case where they have sold some of their most valuable work to, um, to cover operating costs. LaSalle University was in a particularly egregious case where the president decided to sell, uh, again, some of the most valuable works from their university museum collection, not to support the museum, but to fund her five-year strategic plan, which is a big no-no, I think. Uh, it violates all of the uh, professional guidelines. There are two major sets of guidelines. One is the, the American Alliance of Museums. Their guideline is that every dollar realized through the sale of deaccession works should go to care of collections. It's a looser, um, it's a looser recommendation or guideline, and that means that if you need to have new storage or conservation, that's okay, so long as directly related to the care of your permanent collection. The Association of Art Museum Directors, which is a much smaller group, there are 246 of us, I think, I, I am a member of that group, they have a much more stringent standard, which is that every dollar realized through deaccessioning must be used for the purchase of new art. So it's, it's creating a healthier collection by removing those things that, for whatever reason, they're fake, they're duplicate, duplicate they don't support your mission, whatever reason that's legitimate. Um, all of that money needs to go back into the purchase of artwork. And this is really to prevent the monetization of collections. You don't want um, trustees or university presidents or the powers that be that might not really understand what a museum is all about looking at the museum uh, as an ATM, as was the case with the Rose Museum in Brandeis, as you might recall. So that's a long answer to your question. We do accession, but, but very, very carefully. I don't know. I am a firm believer in um, the philosophy that when opportunity knocks, you should always open that door. And I would say that to everyone in this room, especially the artist, because you never know what's going to happen. Um, and I think magic often is waiting on the other side. Usually not what one expects, but always something very, very positive. So, um, but we need to bring the low into 
the here and now, and that was really my job. Donna Shalala hired me, and if you know Donna, you know she's a woman of few words, and um, she hired me with the very simple instructions to put the low back on the map. So that is what we're trying very hard to do without losing sight of who we are and, and why we're here. So we looked, for example, very closely at a, a possible exhibition with the Italian government, beautiful frescoes coming out of um, Pestum, which is right up my alley. That's, that's my part of the world in terms of my doctoral research and whatnot, the, the slopes of Vesuvius. Um, but just the shipping alone was 100,000 euros, which perhaps I could have raised that money, but again, when I think about what my priorities are and how many people in Miami would have really come to that show and have appreciated that show, I regretfully had to say no. Having said that, we do have a few shows um, on the calendar. We're looking at a show of Russian art, um, late 19th, early 20th century Russian art for next spring, uh, because that collection put together by, by Russian nationals who now live in New York, so the work is already in New York, which makes it much easier. We also are working with an, um, an artist from Venezuela, um, a couple of Cuban shows over the course of the next four or five years, another one from Guatemala. So we are trying to um, be more expansive. Uh, and actually, I just started a conversation with someone who's based in uh, one of the Saudi countries because I think that contemporary Saudi art as well as contemporary Asian art are perfect complements to our historic collection. And let's face it, they're so important right now in terms of, of fostering not only a more global vision, but um, understanding and compassion, which is one of, one of our goals, I think, at, at the low, but also at most art museums. It's really about opening people's eyes and making them feel comfortable with that which they don't know, with the other as it used to be called. So uh, we don't do a lot. I wish we could do more, but at the end of the day, it just comes down to, to how we choose to uh, expend our limited resources. That's easy, because it knocked my socks off. It's this show, the MAPS exhibition, which we opened in February, February 5th, I do believe. We had 538 people here, which is a blockbuster for us. I couldn't believe it. Uh, part of it is that we timed it to open um, uh, at the same time as the MAP Fair, which was a big boost uh, for us, but that has been extraordinarily popular. We had um, also a Titus Kafar exhibition. I don't know if you saw that, anybody in this room, the Vesper Projects. Uh, an incredible collection. Titus is a brilliant uh, painter, African-American. He just opened a small show at the National Portrait Gallery. Look him up when you have a moment. Titus is his first name, T-I-T-U-S, Kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R. And um, that was also hugely popular. It was an installation that uh, had literally a whole small farmhouse, two-room farmhouse in our galleries. And I, that we were supposed to be the last venue and the installation was going to be deconstructed and really just put in storage or frankly, who knows what, uh, because the patrons, they're not collectors, they're patrons. They didn't want it back in their collection in Switzerland and Hong Kong where they have their two homes. And I'm not gonna say they didn't care, but they didn't really, they weren't interested in, in the, the permanence of that piece. It was never intended to be permanent, and uh, I just couldn't let that happen. So I'm delighted to report that it's actually staying in Miami, not with us, we don't have the space, but with the Rubel family collection. Oh. 
So uh, that's pretty exciting. Maybe you'll have a chance down the road to see it again because it's very powerful.